happy Saturday. It's July 10th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to July 10th. How was your fourth? My fourth was wonderful. Spent part of it out east at Montauk, where I am the thinking man's freeloader. (laughs) I uh, returned with all my digits. I didn't do anything bad with fireworks. It was lovely. Perfect. Got a lot, ate a lot of pie and ice cream. So what's not to like about the 4th of July weekend, right? How about you? Totally. Absolutely. I overate as usual, but that's just kind of my MO. Michael, you are no doubt the best house guest. What is your pro tip for a host or hostess gift? Clean up after yourself, stay out of the way, do the dishes. It's more about, these are friends that very kindly have us back all the time. So I'm kind of, but I think also I would say if you're going to be an extended guest, you know, show up with a case of something that they like to drink and just leave it for the summer. That's what I would suggest is stock their bar with, with their favorite drink if they like that, you know, and then they're good for a few months. A little bit of that goes a long way. How about you? No kidding. I mean, that's really good. I don't I don't know, Michael. I was asking you. I feel like I always fall short on this matter. I tend to... Well, you must have house guests. What's the best gift you've received? A case of wine. I, flowers are always good. All I have to say is please don't bring Levan cookies, anyone. Like, love you guys, but I can't stop eating those things whenever somebody brings those over for a dinner party or something. Like, the next morning I wake up having consumed four of them and it's a very bad scene. <laughs> <laughs> They're the rich man's version of Pringles in the mini bar at the hotel, right? Which is like, you wake up the next yeah, morning, totally. you see the empty canister on the side of your bed. You just feel like you just, it's like, oh my God, what did I do last night? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, let's get right into it, Michael. We have some very heavy reading today. I suppose we should start. Well, this is once again, another like love themed issue or love and scandal, if you will. But I, I think we should probably talk about the most devastating and frankly, unbelievable story in the whole issue, which is an excerpt from a new book by Carolyn Woods called Sleeping with a Psychopath. And this is the second part. Uh, we ran the first part. On the July 3rd issue, second part is appearing this week. And Ashley, this is like, talk about all the buttons of you being pushed. A story about a high-end grifter, psychopath, confidence man who takes advantage of Carolyn Woods and she's lives to tell her story about this guy. And it's, it's riveting sort of, and also just, if you ever want to know, how to spot a grifter and how to, if you are actually in the grasp of, of a psychopath, you've got to read this piece because I tore through it. I tore through both of them, right? I did too. This book has been a bestseller in the UK and for good reason. It's like, if you think that your ex is a nightmare, pick this up because it makes everything that came before it look tame. So let's back up. Carolyn Woods was a divorcee in her 50s. She was living in a very small town in the Cotswolds, which is a very beautiful and coveted weekend spot for well-to-do Londoners. And she was working in an upscale clothing and lifestyle boutique when a handsome stranger walked in and they hit it off immediately. And the next night they were sipping champagne at a charming little bar down the road. Within the next two nights, they were sleeping together and the story picks up from there. He started off by telling her that he was a banker with UBS and that explained all of his bizarre travelings and his unpredictable schedule. But then he confided in her that it turns out he's actually a spy for MI6 and 
the attention to detail that this guy Mark Conway put into this grift was riveting. Like he somehow managed to, I don't know what he did, if he hired two actors to pretend to be guards at the entrance of MI6 and he walked right by them as she was in the car. So this is not a story of a senseless woman just falling for this guy. I mean, he really went to great lengths to craft this narrative that he was someone he wasn't. And of course, crafting it not to impress her, but to sort of pull her into his confidence, which is, she said, it begins with what she refers to as the love bombing. Just this, you know, he comes, sweeps into her life, sweeps her off her feet. Week or two later, he's taking her to show her this beautiful house out in the country. Like, what is this? This is where we're going to live, of course. Like, I just can't, I've never been in, in love with someone like you. And, and of course, she is taken with it all as any trusting person might be. So he says, you're going to buy the house. Looking back on it, of course, you see the first red flag, which is he runs into a little bit of a problem with the money. The wire transfers help. Can you just put the money into the, for the house? Oh, of course. Of course I will. Well, that begins the, the sort of tapping of the bank account, which just builds from there. This is a guy who, just to back up as well, actually, like he'd started the grifts in when he was 18. Uh, he was first ar- arrested for stealing his father's American Express gold card. So it's a guy who'd had a lifelong thing of this, right? Yeah. she Carolyn knew him as Mark Conway, but his real name was Mark Acklam. And he first made headlines back in 1991 when he was a 16-year-old kid who had stolen his father's credit card, taken a private jet to Paris and treated his friends to champagne and lobster dinners. And that was only the beginning. Uh, His criminal career picked up after that, and he was jailed for fraud both in the UK and in Spain. And Carolyn writes, you know, she was a sophisticated, educated 54-year-old, gregarious, full of confidence, and enjoying my independence following my divorce nine years previously. She had two grown daughters who had flown the nest, and she had a fair amount of money in the bank after the sale of her familial home. By the time that all is said and done with this guy, she has given him $1.2 million dollars. And she's never recovered any of it, although she has seven years later managed to bring him to justice. What I love is how Woods spares nothing here, right? I mean, she takes you into the mind of a psychopath and shows you also into into her own mind, looking back, how she missed the red flags, how she just kept going through the stop signs and sort of choosing to see what she wanted to see rather than the gaps in the logic. This guy, he played her perfectly. You know, he claimed he had infiltrated the IRA, claimed he was a pilot. He told her he had bought this magnificent $4.2 million property, but in fact, he'd forged the signature on the agreement and paid much of the money using money she'd given him for renovations at the other house. So it's a textbook breakdown of of how he was doing this. And then meanwhile, when they're still dating, he was showing up late for dates because he was with his wife and other two kids. So he was juggling all this as a total psychopath, which as she reminds you, the definition of a psychopath is someone who has no care for anyone else's emotions, but their own. Yeah, and he he also had another woman, a doctor, that he had been seeing at the same time. So Lord knows how he managed to balance all this. It sounds completely exhausting. But what I love about this this excerpt and also about the book itself is that Woods manages to have such a clear-eyed view of what happened to her and why she was susceptible to his lies. And I think that's what makes this book so special is that she does, as you say, spares no detail and and talks about, you know, really humiliating aspects of her personal life with a great amount of empathy and tenderness. It's a really wonderful read. Dishy and also very heartfelt. It reads like 
a movie. It should be a movie because it's just, um, it's completely riveting. She's come out the other side, never recovered the money, but she saw him in court where he was sentenced by a judge to five years and eight months. And she testified there. But And then this, one of the stranger pieces of this story is that the man who finally ended up revealing Mark's antics and exposing him for the grifter that he was, well, it turns out that then they started a love affair and they've been together now for the past seven years. So there is somewhat of a happy ending to this crazy story, although she did lose $1.2 in this debacle. Let's hope her book advance is going to cover some of that. Speaking of love stories, we do have one that has a slightly less sinister motive. There's a wonderful piece by Pisar Conradi about the doomed love that inspired the Eiffel Tower. Yes, it's a symbol of romance, but the designer of it himself was motivated by other emotions. Dun, dun, dun. Well, I think the theme here of this week is appearances are not always what you see. And sometimes there's there's another story. And as Peter Conradi, there's, there's a new movie coming out about the Eiffel Tower. And since the Eiffel Tower went up in 1889, it's become, for all of us, a symbol of romance. But this movie posits that the designer was motivated by other emotions. And in 1889, Gustav Eiffel, he was working on his design for it. And two of his right-hand men had designed a simple pylon-like structure. But he ordered these radical revisions. And he came up with the now familiar shape for the tower, which for four decades was the tallest building in the world until the Chrysler Building was built in New York. And that stole its crown. But his biographers have long puzzled over what could have prompted his sudden change of heart. But Caroline Bongrand, the writer who first came up for the idea for the film 20 years ago, said Eiffel, in fact, there's a simple explanation for it. He had his heart broken. Let's go back to sort of the backstory of Gustave Eiffel, Adrienne Bourges. So Gustave Eiffel had met Adrienne Bourges in her native city of Bordeaux. She was 17. He was a young engineer who had come to the city as a construction chief, building an iron railway bridge across the Garonne River. Nice pronunciation. I like it. Garonne River. Their relationship bloomed and they were going to be married, but the wedding was called off at the last minute by Adrian's father, who was a wealthy wood merchant. And he was convinced that Gustav Eiffel was not a good enough match for his daughter. So as Carolyn Bongrand says, he was heartbroken, but also seriously humiliated. So everything that happened afterwards flowed from that. It wasn't exactly a revenge plot. He just wanted to show the world what he was capable of doing. So he wrote to his mother and said, you know what? I'm done. Just find me a nice girl with good character, well-behaved, simple. I don't need to fall in love with her. I just want to get married. So in 1862, he did just that with Marguerite Godelet. And the couple had five children together, but she died 15 years after they were married. By this time, Eiffel is quite wealthy. He's successful. He's only in his mid-40s and he never remarried. And this is when things get interesting because at this point, Bongrand invents a meeting between Gustave and Adrienne Bourges, who had also gotten married in the meantime, and her husband was also very much alive. And in Bongrand's telling of it, it's Eiffel's desire to impress Adrian that convinces him to build the tower. And then she suggests that its A-shaped structure is a tribute to Adrienne, A for Adrienne. Charming. What do you make of the theory, Ashley? It's very romantic. There's not a ton of evidence to prove that this happened, but hey, for biopic purposes, I'm down with it. I like the idea that you could make a giant A over Paris as a tribute or a reminder 
But I think either way, look, it is a symbol of romance, but I think for many people also, you know, there's there's a part of what Paris is, is it's a city for romantics and it's also a city at times for those who are melancholic and moody, right? And maybe have uh, just come off a broken heart or it's a place for people looking to find love. So I think that's kind of the beauty of the Eiffel Tower. It can see in it the meaning you want to see depending on the mood you're in at the moment, right? Exactly. I'll watch that, Michael. We'll see you and I'll see that together at the Angelica on the big screen. I want to come over and watch it in your backyard on the plain sheet hanging over your clothesline or whatever you're projecting your movies on these these evenings. Yeah, I, my friend Casey, thank God, her husband works in film. She loans me her projector, so, so we'll have movie nights at Casey. I'm coming over when this comes out. We're gonna get Michael and I are gonna come see this at your place. Done. All right, Michael. Well, in other happy news, we have a, a fun little close-up of Coco Fennell. Uh, we all know Emerald, and we all know how completely enamored with Emerald I happen to be. And now there's another Fennell for me to obsess about. Uh, this is Coco. She is a 33-year-old fashion designer, and she has this marvelous collection of dresses. And they are kitschy, colorful, mood-lifting, and an awful lot of fun. And she's been very successful, uh, not only because these dresses are just the kind of thing that women enjoy wearing every day, but also because her sister Emerald has enlisted her to do a touch of costume design in Promising Young Woman. She made the the famous rose dress, if you remember that. So Laura Nielsen has done a great little uh, short on her and it's just a lot of fun. And if you're looking for a new dress, you might want to check out Coco's work. Hey, Ashley. Yeah. Speaking of summer, did you ever go to summer camp? I did not, Michael. I'm from the Midwest. We just don't do things that way. Or at least we didn't when I was a kid. Wow. Did you? Yeah, I went to, Sorry. I went to summer camp. Oh, really? Tell me all about it. It was Camp Namakagan. It was up in the north woods of Wisconsin, right near the wild Namakagan River. And I loved it. Yeah, I went up there. Tell me, what was it like? It was the best ever. You're out in the woods, you get in a tent, you get to play with axes and chop down trees and uh, earn merit badges and cook over fire. Come on. And then you canoe and, and, and swim. And it's, yeah. Charlie's not going to go to summer camp? He is actually. He's going this year for the first time. Uh-huh. He's old enough. Uh, he's going to a wilderness camp in Colorado. So we'll see All how right. that goes. See, but he seems excited. He and I need to talk after this because it's going to change his life. He's going to fall asleep to the sound of a loon on the lake underneath the stars at night. <sighs> You're getting the shivers just thinking about it. Well, All right. Well, since you never got to go to summer camp, Ashley, we've got a great guest on the show today. Someone who... I've been a fan of for a long time, Jamie Lee Curtis, and she's here to talk about a new Audible original podcast she's doing centered on summer camp, which is great for families, kids, and everyone else, right? All right, Michael, while she's here, let's hope that she'll talk to us about A Fish Called Wanda and Trading Places, two of my favorite Jamie Lee Curtis movies. Welcome, Jamie Lee. We're thrilled to have on the show today, Jamie Lee Curtis, an actress who I've loved going back to, and I'm going to date myself now, Jamie Lee. Do you like Jamie Lee or Jamie? I don't. That's what I love about you. I've loved you going back to, and I'm going to date myself now, Trading Places. Well, that's not that. It's not like it was in the Ice Age, thanks. I understand, but I mean, I get it. I loved it, too. I saw it, I'll put it this way, I saw it in the theater when I was in high school, okay? Of course you did. It's a super funny movie, and it still actually is funny and holds up, and everybody's really great. And I got to be in a movie with Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy and Denim Elliott. I know. So that was thrilling to me. And Eddie and Dan Aykroyd. And Eddie and Dan, who 
Dan became a long friend, long lifelong friend, and Eddie, who I run into occasionally, and we smile at each other. So, <laughs> my life is complete. Uh, I'm on airmail. I have podcasts, so now I'm sort of I'm ubiquitous in the in the world of this new medium, and life is sweet. Life is sweet, and time on sweet, which is I want to lead with talking about your new Audible original, which is called Letters from Camp, which... Season two. Season two, exactly. Season, I was going to say, season two. We've already done. This is our second of three. So I think in its perfect time of year to do it, obviously, kids are finally, unlike last year, going away to camp. And well, so just for your, un, for your unfamiliar listener, viewer, reader, intaker of information, Letters from Camp is a comedy scripted podcast set in a fictional summer camp called Camp Cartwright, where our protagonist, our lead character, voiced incredibly well by a very young actress named Sunny Sandler, goes for the first time to sleepaway camp. And Sunny's character, Mookie Hooper, is the daughter of a very famous journalist who also attended the camp when she was a girl. And Mookie is much more interested in investigative journalism like her mother than the normal camp activities. And it's a beautiful coming of age story of this young woman. And it has really funny people in it. Last season we had Jake Gyllenhaal, Edie Patterson, Kirby Howell Baptiste, myself, among other people. And then this year is our second season. We're launching on the 24th. Look, I, what I love about the, you know, you talk about the voice and the tone of, of, of the show. And I don't know if this is an accurate description. I'll give you my reaction to it. I mean, it's so few, whether it's a book or a movie or a play, that it, things that are created, you know, quote unquote, for kids ever really succeed because they end up talking down to kids, right? And they don't instead sort of realize that kids are very savvy and, and sophisticated in their, in their intelligence and their sense of humor. And I think the show really nails that. And, and it sort of reminded me, you know, her character in some ways reminded me of another character that I loved from when I was growing up, which is Harriet the Spy. It's got that kind yes. of, right? You know, it's she's she's got that ability to, to observe and to perceive the adult world through the unjaded eyes of a, of a kid who actually, you know, as we realize, like kids see much more of the truth of the world than adults do because they're they're unjaded. So I, I mean, her, that voice of hers and that, that perspective of hers, I find totally engaging. Well, I am glad because <laughs> it was the intention. Here's what I will give you. I will give you a little more background, a little more color commentary to support your analyses. This show was born because my goddaughter... Our show, my co-creator, the writer of every word of every episode, whose name is Boko Haft, who's a comedy writer now living in A year after, remember when, it doesn't matter, I received a letter that she never sent me when she was 12 years old from camp. What? I am her godmother. This show was born because her mother, the wonderful writer Lisa Bernbach, sent me a letter that had my name, Jamie, written in a 12-year-old's handwriting, mm -hmm. which I opened. And it was an unsent letter from camp written by Boko. 
saying what a 12-year-old says to her godmother. Dear Godmother Jamie, I messed up. I got in some trouble. I did a stupid thing. I wish I could talk to you about it. I feel like I let people down, blah, blah, blah. The thing that young people do. Right, And right. I received this letter, and I picked up the phone, and I called Boko Hask, now a comedy writer in Los Angeles, and I said, Boko, this is a show, and it's called Letters from Camp, and it's about a 12-year-old girl. And that began our, that's how this show happened. So when you talked about the authenticity of the voice, the authenticity of the voice began with the authentic voice of a 12-year-old girl away at sleepaway camp having gotten into trouble. And so I agree with you. The other thing that's important is that we like to refer to it as Harriet the Spy meets Liz Lemon. Because the comedy and the, the observational comedy and the her sophistication is very much like a young 12-year-old Liz Lemon. And just so you know, it's set in 2005 specifically because we wanted to avoid social media. The fun of the second season of Letters from Camp on Audible. Look at me. I can sell anything, by the way. Okay. I sold yogurt that makes you shit for seven years. So <laughs> believe me, I can, I can sell things. We have, the, there's a wonderful, huge new uh, twist that happens at Camp Cartwright in the second season, which is that someone arrives at camp claiming that they own the camp. And the young man that voices uh, Charlie Cartwright, this uh, supposed heir of Camp Cartwright, is voiced by Daniel Radcliffe, who, weirdly enough, played my son in the movie Taylor of Panama before the Harry Potter movies. I didn't sell yogurt that made people for seven years, but... I know. I should reverse that. I didn't sell yogurt for seven years that made people... But I will praise this... Did you just grammar correct me on live? No, I grammar corrected myself because you had a... I understand, but I believe you were parroting my incorrect grammar. No, no, you were correct. I feel embarrassed (laughs) and... Almost shamed. I'm and not. You, you were. Listeners you were correct. Will agree with me, and I think there should be. I think we should cancel you. <laughs> cancel culture should step uh, in and cancel you for correcting me I, I, on. I know. I, I was live internet. I was hostile. I don't know what you call it. What do we call this? My passive aggressive. My passive. I didn't. I don't know if you did it. I just simply heard myself I, saying. You did, but it's okay. Oh it's okay. God. Relax. Everything was going so well. It's going so well. There's from Camp Daniel Radcliffe. All right. Well, all I wanted Season to say two was you were so good. All I wanted, and then you all I wanted to say was again what I think is the audible experience and what and what what Letters from Camp does is look again like how few audible things can you share with as a family and I just picture so many people like on the car ride somewhere whether you're taking the car trip this summer or just driving up to the summer home this is like one thing like wow like everyone take off your own headphones and listen to let's do it like as a group and share have that have another thing which is the shared experience again just like you used to you know like you know watch uh, Haley Mills or in the parent trap or something it was it was the shared experience right and again what shared experience does is it breeds conversation. One of the memories of camp is obviously, and this is where you're at this intersection in the culture between creating this great show, which is family and intimate and fun and transportive. And then you've been part of, I would argue, 
the scariest, pardon my language, franchise ever, which is Halloween, right? So, and a big part of camp is ghost stories and scaring the, pardon my language, each other. Yeah. So, do you have any formative, scary experiences from camp? So, So here's the thing that's crucial since we're getting to know each other. I am not a fan of anything scary. I don't understand it. I wouldn't pay money to be frightened. And yet I do understand that there is a large group of people that do. I have been scaring people for 43 years. (laughs) And yet I am, Jamie is the antithesis of that. Halloween, frightening people, being afraid, is not something that has any relevance to my life except for the fact that as a public figure, that is what I do. I want to be respectful of our time. So um, one last question you speak of, of family and relationships. And you're married to another person we all admire so much, Christopher Guest. And it's a very, from the outside, obviously it's a very long and successful relationship. What do you think is one of the keys to that? That we haven't left. (laughs) There is no key. Right. You either leave or you don't. There's not a person I know that hasn't hated their spouse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the success of a long marriage is how much hatred can you live with and not act on it Mm -hmm. and not turn it into then the irreparable split, Mm -hmm. which I am the product of, you know, in my immediate family, I'm the product of nine marriages, Janet and Tony. And then if you add my stepfather, there are another three or four. And we just decided from the beginning that this was the marriage. Well, on that note, is there anything else I haven't asked you? No, you're lovely. I hope we get to meet. I I hope that the transcript will prove me right, that you shamed me in national internet. And in case I'm totally wrong, which I can accept being wrong now way better than I used to be. (laughs) I will accept it with grace. I I will listen to it later today or tomorrow. Shoot me a text and let me know if I was right. Well, Michael, uh, that was illuminating on a lot of different levels. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis uh, pulls no punches. How did it go? How are you feeling? I feel I feel fine. It was a little bit like Knives Out, a little bit like Halloween, but no, I'm kidding. It was great, and we love having her on the show, uh, even though I did correct her grammar. All right, Michael. Well, before we head out into this beautiful summer day, please, anything, recommend. Okay. The one thing I'm going to recommend this week is from our books section. I'm recommending it to myself because I haven't even read it yet, but I'm recommending it to myself based on the review that Nina Burley gave it this week. A new book out as she writes about. It's a mountainous little dot where ancient Greeks, Africans, Arabs, and Northern Europeans have clashed and existed over millennia. It is a book about the invention of Sicily, a Mediterranean history. So I'm going to Sicily. If you've never been to Sicily, it's a place that sort of bites deep, as John Steinbeck once said about another certain part of Italy. But this review made me want to read it it, because it's just, it's an island that has so much history to it, so much beauty. I think that's what I'm going to be recommending to myself and to others for the week. And you, my dear? 
Michael, I'm sorry, but this is your fault. You got me thinking about summer camp and I have to recommend one of my all-time favorite movies, Indian Summer. It is an independent drama caught with a tinge of comedy that came out in 1993. That's right. It has a bad rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's 58%, but I'm here for it and I'm going to endorse it because when I was a kid growing up in Kansas, I watched this movie nonstop in the summer and it reminded me of the experience. I was being horribly deprived. It concerns a guy named Uncle Lou, who is played by Alan Arkin, our hero. And he is the proprietor of a summer camp up in Canada. And he invites some of his favorite campers who are now grown adults to come back for one last summer before he shuts down the camp for good. And Michael, the all-star cast ensues. You have Bill Paxton, Diane Lane, Matt Craven, Kevin Pollock, Elizabeth Perkins, even Sam Raimi. Okay. And this is just such a fun movie about a bunch of adults living their best adolescent self lives for a weekend and all of the interesting plot developments that ensue. So is it super high quality entertainment? I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's a feel good family film and an awful lot of fun to watch in the summer. Rated PG-13 kids. All right. I'm going to counter that with my favorite camp movie, which craziness of all craziness, Matt Craven appears in both of these movies. Is it Wet Hot American Summer? It's my other summer camp movie. It's called Meatballs. Oh, of course. Meatballs. Too good. I think Charlie should watch Meatballs before he goes to camp. Let's not give him any ideas. <laughs> all right. Like we don't want to get him to get kicked out after three days. Then I'm going to have to haul it all the way to Colorado. No. Bill Murray's first starring appearance. Anyway, love this movie. And it's a place to start if you're free with your summer camp movies. It's a double feature, I think, in Cinema Paradiso, Ashley Baker. Love it. All right, Michael. Well, on that note, please let us get back to this weekend. Enjoy the beautiful day and please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. And most of all, thanks for joining us.